Welcome to Sustain, the podcast where we talk about sustaining open source in the long haul. Who are we? Where do we come from? Where are we going? Where's the bug? Where's the bug? Oh, God. Oh, God. Uh, today, we have one other panelist besides me. Hello, everyone. Justin Dorfman. Hey, everyone. And we have fantastic guest today, Matt Acey. Hello. Matt is coming to us from AWS, where he is, I believe, the Director of Marketing and Strategy for their OSPO. Does that sound about right? I manage the team that does open source marketing and strategy for AWS. Awesome. So how is that different from the open source program office you may have there? Do you have one there? We absolutely do. Alex Telsma manages that team. I work closely with Alex and the OSPO. You can think of it in maybe this way, that the OSPO does a lot of the mechanics for how different service teams or product teams manage open source, how they contribute, all the mechanics of like making it easier to contribute to external open source projects, mechanics of how we open source things like Firecracker. And then my team is more responsible for articulating what we're doing to the market, as well as this is where there's some significant overlap on the strategy side, working with the different service teams to figure out how they can best contribute, why they should contribute. So that's kind of a joint effort that both teams do together. We also um, manage our interactions with foundations like the Linux Foundation and, and others. So I can imagine that a lot of what you described normally also fits under the OSPO heading. So it's very similar. How did you end up in that role? So I have been, I've been involved with open source for, I used to think that this was a good thing. Now, as I get older, I think I should probably start hiding how long, but for about 20 years, I've been involved with open source. <laughs> and most recently at Adobe, I ran our developer relations team and OSPO was part of that. And kind of all of our open source interactions was part of that. When I joined AWS, it was actually for, I was looking for some to do something a little bit different. I wanted to be involved with open source, but not necessarily on the OSPO side, not necessarily working to facilitate contributions within the company. I was more interested in working with specific product groups and the data database team and analytics team at AWS in particular, really focused on them helping to figure out how do we how do we do more on the database side? And we work with Postgres so for Amazon Aurora. We work with MySQL, same thing, RDS and Aurora. How do, we, how do we do more with those communities around those projects? So that was really my focus and that's where I started. Over time, I have just gotten pulled into more and more of the conversations across the company with what we're doing with open source. And so it kind of naturally evolved into this role, um, although the, the formal managing the, we call it Team Awesome, Open Source Strategy and Marketing Team, OSS Awesome. When I say awesome team, you're going to be like, does he think his team is really great or is he just naming it? And the answer is both. But the, the that's uh, running that team has been just over the, I think it was like two weeks ago that we, that we made that change. But I've been working with that team from the beginning. So it's, it's just been a kind of a natural evolution. And it's, uh, it's been fun. I mean, one of the challenges, one of the great things about AWS is we've always done more with open source, maybe than credited, than we were credited. 
but also there's been a lot of work that, to do. And so it's, it's, a, it's, it's an interesting role to help figure out how do we do more? Why do we do more? And, and then figure out good ways to talk about it. And the reason we talk about it is not, AWS has been an interesting company because you'd think that if there were a company that had things to celebrate, good things that we do, that we should celebrate, maybe it's Amazon, AWS. But as a company, there's a real concerted effort to not focus on ourselves, but rather to focus on customers. So in some ways, that makes the job of open source marketing a little bit harder because we aren't in the business of going out and and trying to talk about the things that we do, but we are really focused on trying to highlight the things that customers do. So at any rate, it's, it's been an interesting challenge and it's made for a, a very interesting role at, at AWS. You know, I'm glad you brought that up because AWS, for me and my perspective on the outside looking in, has this free rider label. And from people that I've talked to, like Zaheda, you, and you brought that up of, you know, you don't really focus on what, Amazon or AWS does. It's more about what your customers are doing. But how do you get around that or how do you address that with, you know, the controversies like the MongoDB API and all that other stuff? Like what are you what are you doing to combat that? One of the best things about AWS is that customer obsession. You hear about that and frankly I've always said it at different companies that I've been at and I've always been at open source companies and and so we've had the ability to go out and say, hey, we hate, you know, name your legacy vendor. We're removing lock-in and, and bringing peace and love to, to everyone. So I've always worked for those companies. It's always, it's always been an easy marketing sell for me to talk about that. But with AWS, it's different. And, and part of the ways that we contribute are, and I think, I think this is starting to be understood, and it's not just us, but like think of the cloud. One of the big struggles that as an industry we've had over the last five years, maybe longer, has been this shift to the cloud. And it's affected everything. And I, I, again, I've sadly been involved with open source long enough to have seen this where first it was, wait, there's this, what did we call it? The, the ASP loophole, application service provider loophole. So this goes back a while. And, and really it was, hey, the whole open source definition is around distributing software, but we're not distributing software anymore. It's being consumed as a service over the internet, but no one's distributing anything. The fundamental promise of open source or the bargain, reciprocal bargain of open source is you can use this, but you're subject. If you make modifications and you distribute it, you, you need to contribute back depending on the license on the GPL side. That, that's the requirement on the Apache and MIT side. It's maybe a little different. But there's, this, there's always this reciprocal bargain and the cloud or the internet seemed to break that. And so as an industry, we've struggled with that for a while. So we had things like the Afero GPL and then AGPL V3, and, and we've just gone back and forth. And I think also we saw that with the different companies. I used to work at MongoDB. I love MongoDB. It's one of the best working experiences I've ever had. It's just a fantastic company. MongoDB and the various companies, Confluence, Redis Labs, all the, all the different companies that I think initially struggled, not just with AWS, but with the cloud in general, their struggle really wasn't with particular vendors. It sometimes manifested itself in maybe finger pointing. You, you're taking, but you're not giving. 
But it really wasn't particular vendors. It was more just a struggle with what do we do with this cloud thing? Fortunately, what we've seen over the last two years in particular is each of these vendors that started off being really resistant to the cloud have embraced the cloud generally. In fact, I think in every case, working closely with AWS and, and the other cloud vendors and their businesses have boomed. MongoDB is, I think they're at like a $500 million run right now. And I think it's 42% of their revenue now comes from their Atlas database as a service. It's fantastic. And so now you see things changing. MongoDB is a, an amazing partner of AWS. So is Confluent. So is Redis Labs. Go down the list. They're all companies that we work closely with. And I think that that agitation that we had last year, the year before, again, was mostly different companies coming to grips with the cloud. And there was a moment in time where the real frustration was AWS is pretty darn good at operationalizing software and not, not solely open source software, but, but open source software to, to a significant extent. That's where we grew up. You look back at the origins of AWS and it was, how do we make this stuff work for Amazon.com for the retail side? How do we make this? Oh, we're actually pretty good at this. Let's, let's operationalize this software, Linux, and on the storage side, let's operationalize this software for others. And so we've had a head start. We got really good at it and have continuously gotten better and better at making this not exclusively, but making open source software easier to consume for companies. And I think that's one reason we've seen AWS take a lead in the cloud space, but it's also, I think it was this, we have this period of discomfort where again, companies that were our partners on the one hand, were also struggling to compete because we, we both partner with the companies that I mentioned and we compete with them. Well, now fast forward to 2020, and we still compete, we still partner, but each of those companies is, has gotten really good at operationalizing their code. Tim Bray, he's no longer at AWS, but when he said this, he was at AWS, said, you know, I have a lot of respect for people, these virtuoso engineers who develop great software, and he was referring to open source software. He said, but I have just as much respect, and for those who can operationalize and make that software easy so that customers don't have to worry about how they're going to, how they're going to do maintenance on MySQL for, as an example. And so you need both for a time, the open source development side was primarily good at writing great software, not as good at operationalizing it. Now they've gotten much better. We've been really good at operationalizing the software. And maybe not as well recognized, but we're also pretty good at writing the software. I, that, I think, is an area where we will continue to get better. These open source companies will continue to get better at operationalizing it. And now we're in this mix where we're at this point in time where customers are the beneficiaries because they have all sorts of choice, whether it's from AWS or from MongoDB or from Confluent or MariahDB. You have the option of getting not only great software, great services that that software expressed as a service, 
from multiple vendors. It's a great, great time. And, and just in time, given the pandemic, it's a great time for, for enterprises to be, be using open source software. That was a long answer. Sorry. That was a great answer, by the way. And I'm not just saying that. I was just like glued. So thank you for really going in depth on that. I would like to move over to your career. And it's like the most impressive resume I've ever seen. So VP Business Development, Marketing, and Community at Mongo, as you just kind of glossed over. Now, the most interesting one to me, besides the COO at Canonical, but your HTML5 startup stroke acquired by Facebook, what was that all about? So I was interested in mobile, but more interested on what the web could do for mobile than, than what apps could do. Now, as it's turned out, apps have not faded away and we have all sorts of industry drama now with the Apple and the App Store. And, and I, I don't know enough about all that to even go into it, much less like try to avoid that, that topic. But we wanted to make the web on, on mobile just as, just as used and uh, and powerful as as the apps. And I happen to have a friend, Bryce Roberts, with um, NDVC. He was also, and I guess still is, with uh, Tim O'Reilly's venture fund, OATV. He came to me and asked me if I would, if I'd be, if I'd join that company. And Charles Jolly was the founder and had been an engineer at Apple and done great things for Apple with HTML5. So it was it was a great time. It was unfortunately a relatively short time because we were in this frothy period where things were really good. And then I'm trying to remember the exact timeline of but things things got a little bit difficult. That was one of the most challenging work. It doesn't show up in the resume, but it was one of the most challenging things I've ever done because the venture funding kind of dried up, at least for us. And so we were at this point where we needed to figure out something to do. We had a few offers or potential offers, I should say, for the company, but they all required, these were more aqua hires, and they, they all required the engineers to come along and be part of it. Well, the engineers didn't want to come along. And so my job, I became interim CEO then. My job became hold this ship together, convince the engineers that working at Facebook or, and there were some others, but working, let's say working at Facebook is what they really wanted to do with their lives. And there were some strong personalities involved. Uh, one of whom now works with me at AWS and is doing some awesome things with open source at AWS. And I just talked to him yesterday, interviewed him for a, for a blog post that I'm writing, but it, at any rate, it was a big struggle. We got it over the line. The engineers who went to Facebook loved it, and I have no comment on the whole controversies around around Facebook. But as a place to work for an engineer, it was like kid in a candy shop. They got to work on open source software all day long. They got to probably slide on slides and eat lollipops. I don't know what they. I don't know what engineers do at, at uh, Facebook, but it, <laughs> it, it seemed like a very fun place for them to be. It's just that the the other engineers wanted to focus on their particular open source projects and didn't want to be told other things to work on, even if those other things were open source. At any rate, it was, it was a fascinating experience for me. It did not make me rich. It did make me a little bit wiser in terms of um, just having to deal with personalities. And 
somebody asked me the other day, like the key to business, and I'm I'm no Peter Drucker or some business guru, but it strikes me that in in business and in open source, it's always about people. It's always about relationships. And if you want to be successful, you've got to figure out how to how to work with people. I think that's that's particularly true in open source, but I think it's generally true in, in business. I agree 100%. I mean, my, my grandfather was a small business owner, but he would always drill down, you know, business is people and relationships. I always took that over to the open source world because I think that's sort of the foundation of the community and ecosystem is the people and then the code and infrastructure and all the other stuff is built on top of that. So I'm really, really glad to hear that you saying that, you know, coming with your experience and your, you know, success and everything. So it's really, well, it's really cool to hear. Well, and I, I, I experienced that firsthand over the last month or so. I've been interviewing, I think it's like 15 so far, different project maintainers. Everything from like kind of really geeky Linux kernel sort of stuff like FIO, the flexible IO tester, to the maintainer of OBS or streams that Twitch and Facebook, or not Facebook, uh, YouTube streamers, game and, and other streamers will use. Talking to these maintainers, a few things stood out. One is that in every case, like I would ask them as part of the interview, hey, what's if you if you were advising some some different an aspiring project maintainer or contributor, what are the one or two things that they really got to nail? Every single person, everyone without exception, said, "Don't be a jerk. You reflect the kind of community that you will that you will encourage." And so, if you're a jerk, then you're going to struggle. This is their free time. They don't. They're volunteers. They don't have to show up and be abused by you. So every single one of them talked about the importance of being nice, being kind, welcoming uh, newbies to, to the project. And some of them probably do that better than others, but all of them stress that importance. It's easy to look at something like the Linux kernel, which has a reputation for a somewhat toxic environment. Right. And, and, and I'm not on those mailing lists on a, on a regular basis. I read them sometimes. So I read them when, when Linus has said something particularly egregious and everybody uh, kind of points to it. And, but I think even there, I suspect the norm for the Linux kernel is, is probably somewhat collegial because, again, it is, it is a big enough deal that maybe we'll, people will put up with some crap. But I mean, at the end of the day, even if you're getting paid by some big company to be a contributor, at the end of the day, you're doing it for personal enjoyment. That's the other thing that every single one of the, the maintainers that I talked to said. They said they do it for fun. So like Gerald Coombs for Wireshark, so I think, yeah, I'm trying to remember the exact time frame, but it was like 20 years ago or uh, Daniel Stenberg. He said, you know, he's been doing it for 20 years. And I asked him, well, why did you start? And he has a great story for how he started. He was just trying to pull currency exchange rates for, for an IRC channel. It started off as kind of like this personal project. And then he's continued doing it because it's fun. And part of that fun, and Jim Bailey from OBS was emphatic on this, part of that fun is it's people. And if either you're a jerk or the people that you're working with are jerks, 
it's stressful. Talking to the solve space maintainer, she said that one of the things that's been frustrating is they did have for a time kind of a toxic part of that community. And it, it took years off her life and it's gotten better, but there's not really, life's too short to, in general, life's too short for to be dealing with mean people all the time. But it's especially in an environment that, that operates on the principle of you show up, you contribute as a volunteer to a project. If, if you're rude to those volunteers, they're going to go elsewhere. And in open source, those contributors are your most valuable asset and, and often become, in, like as Jim Bailey would say, his best friend. You want that to be as good a, a, an environment as possible. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought up Daniel because he is, I think, very rare maintainer. I mean, he does for five days a week, two hours a day after work, I believe. That could have changed since he's changed jobs to, I think it was Wolf SSL, I believe. But yeah. either way, the person that has to fill his shoes is, it's going to be very difficult because he's got, number one, such a great understanding of the code. You know, it's mostly his, but he also has a community of contributors. But that dedication and that enjoyment, it's just going to be very, very difficult to find someone to kind of fill those shoes. But I mean, I think when he decides to hang up, when he's done, you know, done, done with the project, he can, you know, find someone and, and a, maybe a group of maintainers that will maybe all come together like Voltron and, and become Daniel. But I don't right. think there's going to be like one, you know, there's, there's not going to be another Daniel for that project. So that's, that's the, I, I do think about that a lot. And I know that sounds weird, but he's just one of a kind. Right. Well, and, and the title of this podcast is open source sustainability, right? And yep. think, thinking about that, if you're thinking about it, it's all about people. At the end of the day, people, those people need to pay their rent or mortgage. They need to buy food. They need to, they need to, they need some money. They need some way of keeping going. They need more than that. They need, if we're looking at that Maslow's hierarchy of open source maintainers, they need the friendship and, and camaraderie that comes through the, the community. They need all these different things. And you're right. Like if somebody like Daniel decides to hang up his keyboard, as it were, as Salvatore Santo just recently did at Redis. And I had interviewed him a month before he made that decision. And he talked about like how, but now in retrospect, like hindsight, you can put the pieces together. He's like, you know, I'm, I'm spending all my time maintaining. It's not what I love to do. I really want to be coding. And, and so he kind of, I guess I should have seen the writing on the wall, but, but I thought he, the way that he stepped out unapologetically, like, Hey, I'm, I'm done. I need to, I need to get back to writing code and here are these great people to take it on. And I was, I mean, personally super excited that one of those people works for AWS, Madeline Olson. I was even more excited that Madeline is a woman. And so it's great for open source because frankly, we have a really crap record on diversity. So that was amazing. But he, he sets this up and then he, 
he walks off. And like for years, so I spent years involved with Linux, um, working for a few different Linux vendors. We talk about like what happens if Linus Torvalds gets hit by a bus. Well, somebody like Salvatore is, has answered, at least for Redis, what happens. Rather than get hit by the bus, he decided to get off the bus. And I think life's going to go on and Redis is going to be okay because of that community that he fostered. And I actually think in some ways it may become even stronger because one of the things that he told me when I interviewed him was, it's like, you know, I have a hard time giving up control. Like I write all of the documentation. I do, I do all of this stuff. And so he saw himself as um, a blocker in some ways to the others, the others contributions. So now hopefully that, that impediment, if you want to say that, because he did an amazing job, but now other people are going to be able to step up and, and contribute more. So, so it's good. So I think one of the keys to sustainability is, has to be community. And I actually worry about projects that are, and I, and, and I say this as somebody who spent a fair amount of my career working for companies that, that are representative of the problem I'm about to say. I think there's, I think there's a risk, sustainability risk, when it's like a one company town or a one company project. Because if that company changes direction or, or struggles to make money or, or whatever, then the project suffers. Whereas if you have a community made up of kind of diverse interests, it has a better chance of, of continuing. And again, then taking one step lower down, forgetting the commercial interests involved for those developers who need to pay their mortgage, who need to pay their rent, it's, it's better to have a community-driven open source project where, where the burden doesn't fall, hopefully doesn't fall exclusively on any one of those people who at any given time, I mean, as people, we just, life's pretty good for, I feel very privileged. Life's pretty good financially for us right now. We're not rich, but we're, we're doing okay. But at any other, there are periods of my life where that hasn't been true. And I wouldn't have been able, if I were an open source developer, I wouldn't have been able to contribute code at the same rate. So I, again, I think it's the key to sustainability is having that, that a strong community. But what's interesting, and I don't have any answers for this, is I know that there have been attempts in the past for, for if you think of open source as a supply chain, to, to help fund key parts of the supply chain where, where, it's, where a project's maintained by a single developer. And if that if that project goes down, then all hell breaks loose. But in some cases, the developers didn't want a real job, quote unquote, a real job, didn't want to work for the man. Jim Bailey at OBS is an example of that. He, I don't think he would, he, he got an offer from, or not, didn't get an offer, but that's not true. He has had offers, like seven figure offers to go take OBS into a company. And he's like, that wouldn't be good for the community. And frankly, it wouldn't be good for him. Like he wouldn't. He wouldn't thrive in that environment. So what do we do about those developers who are great at writing the software, but maybe not great at corporate politics and working within a big organization? And the short answer is, I don't know. But I think that's, a, I think that's something that we need to figure out because, because open source is only getting more and more significant with more and more dependencies on it. And 
figuring out how to help those developers to work in a way that they want and be able to meet their, not just their basic human needs, but their, their higher order needs as well. That's, I don't know, that's, that's a challenge. And I don't have any great answers for it. I think one of the things that's really interesting is people aren't really fungible, right? Everyone's their own individual. And especially when you have things like a BDFL, BDFLs aren't fungible at all in terms of the program, in terms of like the code right. that they've written. They always have a better view than anyone else. Even if you have someone who comes along who decides to take over that sort of BDFL leadership. And I'm, I'm thinking of a few cases here where that might have happened. For instance, Henry Zhu has sort of taken over Babel, but he's not sure. the original coder for Babel, right? But he also has a different right. role than a BDFL in a sense. He's like now the marketer. He's the guy doing the maintainership. <laughs> the one who goes out and corrals the community together. And I think what's happened there and what can happen in sustainable communities of individual projects is that when you recognize that someone isn't fungible, but that parts of what they do are, if you can build a governance structure where those roles can be mm. taken over by community members, then you end up with a much more diverse system that's much harder to fall down because people can fill in the gaps and people know I'm doing this particular role here. And you sort of leave space open for people to meet their own needs in the project itself, right? Because everyone That's wants really to have their point. Yeah. Everyone wants to have their ego kind of, you know, touched. They want to feel seen. And so you need to figure out a way for them to do that while having what they have, while also taking on responsibilities that they may not want to do, because there's always grunt work. Someone always needs to merge, you know, the low level PRs that are just, hey, this needs to be updated. And so that's building a place for that is really important. And I think on the ecosystem level, when you're talking more about the chain that you were mentioning, you know, like what happens with if if something goes down. And I always think of Heartbleed. I always think of, you know, these two programmers who are for 20 years working in a basement alone. And then there's a big issue and everyone's like, oh, let's fund this. Let's fund Heartbleed. Let's, you know, let's, let's fix that problem and fund these two guys. But another answer would be don't worry about it. Don't worry about top-down levels at all. Worry about systemic issues. Worry about the fact that we're all based on one dependency. And so what you want is not just diversity within a project. And I love that you mentioned that it's great that Madeline Olson is taking over part of the roles at... Uh, at Redis. That's awesome, right? And yes, we have a diversity problem in that way as well. Most coders are white and male as far as I know. But we also have a problem with dependency graphs, where if you have a pyramid, if you have an hourglass... That's a systemic issue, which yeah. eventually leads to issues where certain parts collapse. And so the way to fix that is to have multilingual platforms, is to have you know, multiple options that people can use, which is why it's great that you're working with MongoDB and Redis and Confluent, right? You can't just have AWS. Otherwise, it leads to an unhealthy system and large monopolies taking over the space. So I think... It, you said you didn't really have an answer to how do, you, how do you solve these problems. I think you do, and you're working on it, which is continue to collaborate and continue to notice that people want to be seen and that they can sort of offload their roles over time. Well, I am stealing your answer about the, the dependency graph, expanding, expanding that so that it's not all single-threaded through one project. I, I yeah. will give you credit, but... Eventually, I will just take credit for it and say that it was all my idea. Because that well, is a fantastic I, I, I answer. I still credit for that. I still credit. I stole that myself, right? That, that wasn't me. I hey. the protocol lab. Yeah, I, we're, I, we're just I, working. I heard someone on a podcast yesterday. It was um, Jim Dethmer, I think, on a Tim Ferriss podcast, say he's a smuggler. 
All he does is take ideas and <laughs> smuggle them out to other places. <laughs> so I just smuggled that from Protocol Lab because one of the things that Juan Mene did with IPFS was he built a, a spec first, and then you build a spec, but then you also have multiple iterations going on simultaneously in different languages. So it's not just IPFS JS, it's also IPFS Go, it's also IPFS mm. and Rust, right? And the whole idea is that then there's no one single one that's the source of truth. You find issues in the implementations, which then can be brought back into the spec, but then you don't have an issue where JS IPFS becomes the spec just by de facto because it's the only one people use. If you have yeah. multiple languages, the whole ecosystem is a whole lot stronger. Yeah, that's a great point. And it will become my point. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. Uh, sorry. So one question I have, which is, what are you doing with your team? To I, I know you said that you partnered with CouchDB, with Confluent. What do those partnerships look like? And what are you doing to make sure that the work that you have lasts beyond you in the long Yeah. So the fortunate thing is I... I don't have to do very much, fortunate for me, but also fortunate for, for AWS longer term. What I have done, so we were already working, before I joined, we were already working with Confluent on the Kafka side. We're already working with Redis Labs. We're already working with MongoDB and, and others. The thing that I have done, and if I like, I'm not one to give myself credit, and even in this, all I did was was raise my hand and say, hey, these partners are really important to us. And not just from a revenue perspective, but because they represent these open source projects and communities, we need to, we need to treat them like they're important because they are. So that's really my only contribution is to come in and, and say, we need, to, we need to do more with these partners. Because the PDMs, the partner development managers, were already working with them, the business development, all the, all the different structures. Because ultimately, and it really is true, it feels like a throwaway line, but AWS, Amazon, generally, AWS is that when they say customer obsessed, it, it's real. And if you had, for example, so Redis Labs competes with among other services, kind of general database services at AWS, but competes directly against Amazon's AWS Elasticash business. But I guarantee if I were to call the GM of the Elasticash business and say, we have a customer who really wants to use Redis Labs, their cloud service, and not ours, not, they don't want to use Elasticash, he or she, in this case, he, is going to say, Awesome. What can we do to help? Now, it might not be the Elasticash team that ends up helping, but somebody at AWS is going to help them because what matters most is that the customer is, is happy. So that, that actually clears away a lot of problems that we might otherwise have with the whole we compete with our partners because ultimately the only thing that matters is that we take care of the customer. So it sounds like an infomercial, but I say it more just from a it, it that's really how the company operates. And it was that, weird for me when I joined. Well, that's the North Star. I mean, that's from day one, customer obsession, their first. And it just shows, like, not just with AWS, but every single Amazon product. So I believe it. Yeah. Well, in, in open source, I mean, the customers are your contributors, right? The customers are your users. So that's directly applicable for those of us who 
don't have, you know, Amazon offices. If you have a small project, 100%, how can I help this contributors? How can I help out my users over and over and over again? Will yeah. lead to the same sort of results. So my job, in part, my job has just been working with the different business development, partner development teams to highlight the importance of these partners, of these open source companies, and then to just kind of continuously be involved and and help make sure that we're doing it. But I have to do very little to, I mean, I, I wish that I could get on this call and, and say that the entire world changed at AWS changed because of me, but it's not true. Like all I did is kind of shine a spotlight and say, hey, these, these partners are particularly important for these reasons. And, and that just gave the partner development managers, the business development folks, an excuse to up-level those partners, which they, which they wanted to do anyway. But it just, I, I just made it a little bit easier for them to do that. Which means that when, if I get hit by a bus, which is unlikely because I spend most of my time just sitting inside, uh, but eventually when the pandemic's over and I walk outside and if I get hit by a bus, the life will go on. Like it's it, my, my role in this might've been helpful for igniting a spark, but it's not necessarily needed for continuing that focus with the, with the partners. Be careful though. I mean, the bus <laughs> analogy is a joke, but you know, p- p- pan-European linguistics basically died when the one guy behind the whole, like, Indo-European strategy got hit by a bus in Russia. It, it happens. Anyway, that's really great that you're doing that work. And sometimes the most effective work is actually either getting out of the way or just showing people how to do something that seems really obvious, but they didn't have to go to. So that sounds wonderful. One of the things you keep mentioning that you're doing is you keep saying you're interviewing people. And it's around time to wrap this up. It's been a great conversation. But what I want to know is if people want to read about these interviews, if they want to read your blogs, where can we find out about you? Where can we follow you on the internet? And what do you want to say there? So the anything that I write, I will always end up tweeting it out. So, and on Twitter, I'm just M-J-A-S-A-Y. So that's probably the easiest way to find it. But then I write for a variety of publications, the, the New Stack, InfoWorld, and Tech Republic. But again, I end up tweeting it out. So that's probably the, if you wanted one central place, one thing that I, so I kind of despise Twitter, but I also, I also love it because I find <laughs> it, it's interesting to have when we're not politicizing and beating each other over the head. I find the conversations around open source, like for example, with, with Google's open usage commons that they announced yesterday, the conversations about that have been really interesting on Twitter. So I think Again, there's Twitter's a bit of a dumpster fire, but there there are times where that and I with my Twitter, I basically try to make it as informative as possible around open source. So if somebody's interested in open source, that's I guess that's the short answer to my to your question is just follow me on Twitter. I try to keep it very topical on on open source and not self-serving toward AWS. I'm, I'm not in the habit of doing infomercials. That's a shame that you're not in the habit of doing infomercials because now is the time for Spotlight, where we shine spotlight on really <laughs> cool projects, which we love and we think should get some more light on them to reuse the metaphor again. Justin, what do you got for us this week? Rweave.org. I'm working with them um, on a hackathon at Gitcoin, and they created this thing called the PermaWeb, which is a decentralized community-owned web that anyone can contribute to. 
or get paid to maintain. I know that sounds like an infomercial, but really it's a, it's actually a really interesting technology and the team is really cool. So I just want to give them a shout out. Awesome. Mine this week is going to be the IPFS stack. Uh, I, don't, I don't think I've actually given them a spotlight before, but they're awesome. Great team, great community. You can go to IPFS.io, I think. And what I really love about them, as I mentioned here, is the multilingual aspect of let's just have multiple implementations running at the same time. And if someone wants to write something in Haskell or Erlang or any of the weird languages that are written from left to right or in white spaces, they can go do it. And that's a really interesting way to program. And I love it. So IPFS is mine. Matt, what do you got? In terms of projects or other things that I love, I'd maybe do it a little bit different. And I would say that the of those we mentioned earlier, the interviews that I'd been doing, the most interesting, and this is high praise because they were all very interesting, but the most interesting person that I met in doing those interviews was Jim Bailey, Hugh Jim Bailey at OBS, Open Broadcasting Software or Studio. The man is... I just loved that guy after talking to him for 45 minutes. I would encourage anyone that's interested in in open source and a project that can be very useful for them, but just to spend time in that community learning how Jim operates within his community. So again, different from what both of you just said, but I'm so impressed with Jim Bailey. He's just the sort of person that I just think is fantastic on every level. Love it. Thank you so much. Thank you, Matt. It's been great having you on the show. And take care. Thanks thanks for having me. me.